Okay. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go out with you. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard this, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Amen. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Barry was shockingly good at that. On the spot, hadn't even read it, didn't know what was coming, might have to make him do it every week. And more miraculously, my notes downloaded, so we're back on track. <laughs> what I was attempting to tell you was this is the 40th week that we've been in the Gospel of John, and uh, so far not had any note trouble, but we've got them now. This will be the next to last week that we look at John's Gospel, as we read the first half of chapter 21 this week, and we'll conclude next week which is quite an accomplishment to have spent a year working through John's gospel. And I know, as so many of you have conveyed to me, has been a really impactful year as we've given so much time and attention to who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing and how he was shaping those first followers. In this week's story, Jesus again appears to his disciples after his resurrection. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Jesus has now been making these resurrection appearances to his disciples. And John tells us that this was the third time in which he had appeared to those gathered disciples. It is a little strange how John chooses to conclude his gospel. If you were with us last week when we looked at the end of chapter 20, it's almost as if John was wrapping up the gospel there. He comes to this kind of summary statement in which he says that all of these things, all of these stories have been gathered and written here in this book so that you might believe, and that key phrase we looked at last week, that you might have life in him. It seems like a concluding statement about what you're supposed to do with this book. But then you turn the page and you come to what is two additional stories, this other chapter that's been added on to the end. Uh, some commentators come to the conclusion that this was at a later edition, that clearly it ended so well in chapter 20 that somebody felt the need to tack these stories on. But many more commentators think that John is doing something specific, something strategic with the way he's adding these 
really most intimate stories of Jesus' resurrection here after that summary statement. The effect of these two things, if you read from last week's passage into this one, is that some of Jesus' most personal conversations and resurrection, post-resurrection time he spends with his disciples comes here at the ending of the book. Last week, the way John concludes, he pulls all who would believe into the story. That this story exists so that anyone who will believe, that's all the way down to us today, and have life in Jesus are a part of this new church, this community that he was forming by his resurrection. It's as if John, in that summary statement, pans out from the story of Jesus on earth, zooms out and includes all of those throughout time and history who would join men like John and Peter and Mary and faith and belief in Christ as resurrected. But then with this final chapter, the effect is he zooms quickly back in on these intimate scenes of Jesus gathered with his disciples around a fire, sharing bread and fish, personal conversations, as we'll see next week with Peter, really the most personal conversation he had had yet with him. And so by doing so, John pulls off this effect by including us in the story and then offering us these personal experiences of Christ as if to say, this is ours too. If we are a part of this resurrection community that Christ has established, then this personal Jesus who takes the time to share, to eat, to give the command, cast your net to the other side, to watch his disciples pull in this abundance fish, that this too is a part of the promise to us, just as that promise last week. Now, the setting of the story is unique. We find ourselves back in Galilee, where we left off last week. The disciples were still in and around Jerusalem. Remember, they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover prior to Christ's crucifixion. But all of a sudden in this chapter, we read that they are sitting alongside the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was that great Romanized city built on the Sea of Galilee. So here we're talking about the more familiar Sea of Galilee. They apparently had left Jerusalem at some point and found themselves back home, back where most of them were from, that region of Galilee, and sitting around, apparently, trying to figure out what to do. The disciples don't seem to be doing much of anything, sitting there. It's Peter's interruption. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go fish, and the rest of them coming to the conclusion, well, we might as well go with you, that leads us to realize that there wasn't anything on their agenda. A group of guys sitting around without anything to do and suddenly deciding, I'd rather do something than nothing. Let's go do that thing we did before. Most of them having been, before Jesus calling, fishermen. So they get up, following Peter, launch their boats, and head out into the Sea of Galilee to fish, not sure what else they should do with their time. They knew how to fish. But we find out from the story that it didn't work very well. They fished all night, and they caught nothing. Uh, This, to me, feels a lot like what life is so often like, doesn't it? I'm not sure what to do, so I'll fall back on that thing I know until I soon realize that even that apparently hasn't panned out. Apparently, I don't know how to even do that well. This scene, the disciples not sure what to do, trying to figure out what comes next after Jesus' resurrection, waiting and sitting there in Galilee, going back to what they knew, but even that not quite working— It raises this setting question of what is it that the disciples should be doing? That's the question at the heart of this opening scene. What do you do with your life after you've seen Jesus resurrected? What do you do while you wait for him to show up again? 
How do you live in a world where everyone else denies it, where there's some danger and risk associated with claiming it, but yet you have so powerfully experienced it for yourself? What matters about life after you have received that word, that realization that Jesus is alive? What should the disciples be doing? They go fishing, and that doesn't seem to solve the problem. Fishing is a great image for it, though. Casting nets, hoping for fish, going to that honey hole that you've gone to so many times before that always produces the best catch, but this time you find yourself beaten. You catch nothing. It's all chance, all luck. Um, That idea of fishing as an image for what comes next, what will I catch, is an old image. Thoreau put it this way, many men go fishing all of their lives without knowing that it is not fish that they are after. And you sense something of that here with the disciples. They fish, but really they're trying to figure out what do we do next, what comes next. We learn that as day breaks, they see a man standing on the shore, a man who calls out to them. But of course, they don't realize that that man is Jesus. That has been typical of these resurrection experiences. So often, Mary included the other disciples, they see Jesus, but don't initially recognize that it's him. There's something very interesting about the way Jesus shows up in these resurrection events. On the one hand, the gospel writers go out of their way to stress the physical presence of Jesus, the actual risen body of Jesus, that he's not some ghost or some spirit that's come out from the body of Christ and is now with them after death, but the disciples touch him. They walk down roads with him. They see his wounds. They see the marks in his hands and his pierced side. In this story, they watch him eat, stir a fire, cook fish, break bread, It doesn't get much more human than that, sitting around eating with somebody, as human as an experience as you could have. And all of the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection stress this. It's a real physical body of Jesus resurrected before them, the same body that they had watched taken down from the cross, pierced in the side, hands nailed to the wood. But on the other hand, in all of these resurrection stories, there is a kind of mysterious quality to these appearances. He comes upon them when they are behind locked doors. He suddenly appears to them in their midst. They often don't recognize who he is until he speaks a certain word, a certain familiarity of the word he speaks or the sound of his voice suddenly brings them to the realization that it is Jesus with them. I can't prove it to you, but I think the way John tries to portray these encounters with the resurrected Jesus is a way of providing continuity between Jesus and what they will experience when the Holy Spirit begins to come and work within their midst. There's a kind of Holy Spirit quality to the way that Jesus comes and speaks and appears and moves around them. You might remember that scene when he first appeared to the disciples. Jesus breathed on them and commanded them, receive the Spirit, his own breath, symbolizing the Spirit coming upon them. And at this point, this continuity of Jesus resurrected and the Spirit's work to come is something John stresses across his gospel. And so Jesus, in all of these resurrection appearances, seems to act like the Spirit, like the Spirit those first believers would become so familiar with recognizing and on down to our own day, our own experiences 
the Spirit coming into our midst, discernible but subtle in the way that he speaks, the familiarity of his voice, the commands, cast your net to the other side, and the abundance that comes from it. Here, as Jesus comes upon them like the Spirit, there suddenly in their midst on the shore, they don't recognize him, but he gives them a command. To them, it's a man on the beach who calls out, cast your net to the other side. Now, remember, these are professional fishermen. Men like Peter had grown up on the Sea of Galilee, spent his life out in boats on the Sea of Galilee, had spent plenty of nights fishing, catching, sometimes not. Now, a random man on the shore decides to tell them, oh, all night long, you've not been catching fish, but if you just happen to throw the net to the other side, you'll haul them in. You could imagine if you've been fishing all night, catching nothing, your favorite spot, trying every bait, reeling it in slowly, reeling it in quickly, letting it bounce across the bottom, rattling it across the water's surface, for a few hours just hanging under a bobber while you give up, not knowing what else to try, nothing having worked. And as so often happens with fishing, another fisherman walks by and decides to give you a piece of advice. Throw that jig over by that log and you'll catch a monster. Sure, you think, I've cast over by that log for 12 hours, but why not? And sure enough, you do, and sure enough, that's the cast. You haul in a monster fish. They decide to follow the man's advice. Why not? Nothing else has worked. They throw their net over to the other side of the boat. And not only do they find the net full of fish, but miraculously full. It's so miraculously full that they consider it a second miracle that the nets themselves haven't broken, that they're actually able to pull in this massive load of fish. It is a kind of miraculous abundance. And in that moment, John realizes exactly what is going on. Not just another local fisherman with some special insight about the port side instead of the starboard side of the boat. He recognizes this is Jesus, the command of the Lord. There's probably two things going on for John in that moment of realization. Remember, John was the one who, when he came across the empty tomb had recognized how the folded clothing of Jesus in that place fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, and in that moment recognized no one had stolen the body of Jesus, but there was something something bigger than they had realized taking place. He had received it and understood it by the promise of Scripture. And so most commentators think that when John recognizes that this is not just a random coincidental catch of fish, but a miraculous catch of fish, that several passages of Scripture began to trigger for him. Passages of Scripture, but also personal experiences. John doesn't record the event, but this story plays out very similarly to one that Luke records in Luke chapter 5, one that probably many of the readers of John's gospel would have known of as well. John 5 records that early in Jesus' time with his disciples, we now find ourselves at the end of that time, that early on when Jesus was with his disciples, he was with them in a very similar fishing boat on the same Sea of Galilee. In that situation, early in their time together, it had been another night of fishing and another night without catching fish. As day began to break, Jesus commanded them to throw their nets out into the deeper part of the lake. The disciples didn't understand the command. Again, knowing themselves to be fishing and knowing how to fish, it didn't seem like that great of advice, but they did likewise. 
And similarly, as they obeyed Jesus in that day, they caught so many fish that it did begin to break their nets and risked sinking their boats as they called for help to haul in the load. Jesus had used that moment early in his time with the disciples as an illustration, saying to them, Do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. That as you have hauled in this catch of fish, you will become fishers of men. Now the disciples find themselves in a similar but different situation, another night without catching fish. After a few days of sitting around and waiting, not sure what to do, they go out fishing and it doesn't work, but suddenly Jesus appears to them and again commands them where to cast their net, and again they find themselves hauling in a miraculous catch. There's a kind of continuity between the two stories. Jesus had called them to be fishers of men, and had now once again shown up to remind them of who they were and what it is they were to be doing. He could show them again. But of course, the great difference in these two stories being that Jesus is this time not in the boat with them, but across the lake on the shore. He would do this also after his ascension, guiding them and commanding them, Wait, receive the Holy Spirit, the power that will come. You will become my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That Jesus, from the beginning to this point after his resurrection and on into the future of these men's lives, would speak to them this calling to go, to cast nets, to reach the world. There's a second passage John was probably thinking of in this moment. I don't know if you've ever wondered why it is that Jesus called fishermen to be his followers. After all, Jesus, we learn, was a carpenter, probably means in that first century context that he was a stonemason. He would have built buildings out of stone as they were built around there. Jesus was from Nazareth, which is not a fishing town, not on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus probably did not grow up working fishing boats or on the water like Peter might have. So why is it that Jesus seems to go out of his way to call fishermen, fishermen from Galilee, to be his first disciples? As Jesus had done over and over, and as we've seen so many times through John's gospel, I think John understood the way Jesus was being intentional to fulfill the promises of Scripture. And even here, all the way down to who he calls his disciples, fishermen from Galilee, Jesus seems to be intentionally playing out a prophecy from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 16, we read, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But now, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land and give that I gave to their fathers. In other words, the work that I did rescuing Israel from Egypt. The day is coming while I will rescue them again from every nation of the world and bring them back to their father. Verse 16 of Jeremiah 16. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. It's probably that Jesus was very intentionally calling fishermen so that he could signal that that day Jeremiah had anticipated was the day in which he was doing his work. That that great work of casting nets and hauling in all who would believe from every nation of the world was taking place through him. And that God was, in fact, by calling them actual fishermen, making them now fishermen of men. If they had been asking, sitting around waiting to see what Jesus did next, what should we be doing? This miraculous catch of fish was absolutely clear. 
They were a part of what Jeremiah had anticipated. That what Jesus had done for them early in his ministry, he was still capable of doing now, even after resurrection. They were called to cast nets, to catch men, to call people to Christ. They had the miraculous help and guidance of Jesus himself, this continuity with the Spirit to come for doing that work. The question, of course, is, what should we be doing? Those who, by the chapter before, find themselves caught up in believing these stories, having Christ in us, what is it that we now do, like those disciples sitting around trying to figure out what does it look like and mean to live in this world after Jesus' resurrection? Surely this story suggests a big part of what it is we all find ourselves called to do is listen. Listen to the voice, the one on the bank. Listen to the command of the Spirit. Expect that he will show up, even after long nights without catching fish. With this command, cast your net to the other side. There's work still to do and a catch still to make. The Christian's work in following Jesus is unique like this. When you are called to follow Christ, to be a participant in his kingdom, this work that he's doing, go and make disciples of all nations, God doesn't hand you some sort of a puzzle, a Rubik's Cube that you have to solve. If you can just get all of the steps and procedures just right, then you'll be effective, successful in this work. Christians have so often attempted to do it by being clever, by building strategies or systems, plans that we put in place, how we will carry out the work of God, how we will reach the world. The first disciples strained to hear and recognize what it is Jesus was leading them to do. But when they did hear, they obeyed. They found their nets full, miraculously full. Not because they had figured it out or unlocked the code or had just the right strategy or purchased the right equipment, because a voice spoke from the shore which commanded them, cast your net to the other side. And in a simple kind of obedience, they found those nets to be full. Perhaps the thing, though, that strikes me most about this passage, that surprised me about it, that I didn't initially see, was that while this story is no doubt about work, about the work ahead, what it means to be fishers of men, this calling that Jesus had given his disciples to carry out, what we should be doing as participants in it, it's a whole story about work, fishing, But the final image isn't one that motivates them to do that work simply out of obligation. Don't you know what your job is to do? Why aren't you doing it? Go do it. Go fish. Get back out there. Catch more. It isn't as if Jesus works us up into this work by cheering us up or giving some rousing speech or riding up and down the lines with some charge order that he gives as we again the approach to take the ground. He doesn't say to us, get busy, have at it, get back out there, what are you doing on the bank? Instead, Jesus cooks them breakfast over a fire and invites them to come and eat. It's interesting the words he uses. Verse 5, he calls them children. I'm not sure I want to be called child as I'm out fishing. He's probably, though, most commentators think, using a friendly kind of word in the way that you might in some places hear lads or boys. Boys, how's the fishing been? Something you might hear standing on a bank as somebody walked by. Jesus speaks to them in the same kind of casual and friendly way. How's the catch been? Not good? Try casting to the other side. And as they're shocked by the catch, he calls them in. I've been cooking fish and bread. Sit down. Join me for breakfast on the bank. 
They do. Sitting with Jesus, sharing breakfast in the context of this great work, this net cast to the world, this great commission they find themselves a part of. One commentator explains early, Mary recognized Jesus when he called her name. The disciples recognized them through his wounds. Now he is recognized through the abundance that comes through obedience to his word. They recognize Jesus in that moment, obeying and seeing the abundance that he offers them. What Jesus does is he frames the work before them, not in fear or adrenaline or some rousing pep talk, but he frames the work that they are to do within the context of a relationship with him. Sit and eat. How was your night's fishing? Let me show you how to do it. I speak to you, command you, and when you obey, you suddenly find yourself in on something bigger and better than you could have imagined. And so this passage connects two things that for most of us, we struggle to keep connected. Go into all the world and make disciples, reach all who are lost, preach and proclaim boldly the gospel wherever you go. Time is running out. The harvest season is now. Get busy doing the work. But in the midst of that call, take time to eat breakfast on the bank with Jesus. Learn to listen and discern the subtleties of even strange commands. He'll tell you where to go. He'll tell you where to cast your net, even if it's been a long time since you've caught a single fish. Too much of our efforts get caught up in one of two perspectives. Either we bear all responsibility, all the work on ourselves, we have to figure it out, we have to have a system and a plan and a procedure and all of the mechanisms of funding and support, we end up fishing all night without much to show for it. Or the other perspective we slip into is we just sit around waiting, waiting for inspiration, waiting till the perfect moment or plan comes, waiting till we have it figured out or the moment seems right. Jesus combines these two things in ways hard for us to do. Get in the boat and get to work. Cast your net. Cast it to the other side. But none of it is motivated out of desperation, but a simple trusting in him, the recognition, the familiarity of his voice, and the reward of an abundant catch and time spent with him on the bank. Perhaps the final lesson of this passage is the realization that Jesus is with them. It is Jesus that makes these two things simultaneously possible. Work and rest. A mission, a job to do bigger than any of us could have ever imagined doing. Yet at the same time, not a bit of desperation or fear, for we discover that it is Jesus who by a single command can change everything. Even as they sit waiting half confused on the banks of Galilee, even as they get frustrated having fished all night and caught nothing, even as the sun breaks and they fail to realize who it is they're speaking to, he has not left them. It takes one simple command to turn everything around. John explains that in that moment, hauling in that weighty net full of fish, he turned to Peter and said, it is the Lord. He recognized immediately who it was on the bank. And as the rest of the disciples sat there around that fire, having breakfast with Jesus, overwhelmed by what they had just been a part of, 
They can't bring themselves to ask who he is, for they know it is the Lord. They recognize who it is that is with them, speaking to them and guiding them. If you go back to Jeremiah 16, why I think it is Jesus called fishermen to be his first disciples, if you read through the rest of that chapter, Jeremiah 16 ends with the prediction that as God sends out these fishermen to call people in, as he goes into all the world and brings them back into a relationship with himself, Jeremiah ends that chapter with this verse. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. That's what the disciples finally realize in this moment. John, while they're hauling in nets, the disciples, while they sit around the fire, it is the Lord. Jesus is with us, guiding us still, even when we had missed it, when we imagined we were on our own. It is the Lord. That fulfillment of Jeremiah's promise, they shall know that my name is the Lord. Those disciples sensed his presence, sensed the way he had come unexpectedly upon them, sensed this direction and command to be just what they needed in the moment, and sensed that they were participating in something bigger than they had recognized. It's my experience that it is easy to lose that, just as it was for the disciples. One day, the miraculous resurrected Jesus walking through a locked door. A few days later, sitting on a bank, not sure what to do next. Something of the miraculous participation having been lost. The disciples who touched his wounds found themselves trying to sort out what to do next, restless with his absence. And the truth is, we so naturally lose it too. I'm always surprised how quickly it can happen. That you can come to a Sunday morning and have some powerful experience of God's presence. It all seems so genuinely real to you as you worship, so true, so actual. The powerful sense of his spirit speaking to you just as those disciples recognized it. And then sometime by Monday afternoon, as work emails begin pouring in or bad news comes with a phone call, you all of a sudden find yourself acting and thinking as if the world is all that exists. You may still believe in Jesus, may still hold true theological statements about Jesus, but something of that presence has been lost. In the same way that the disciples grew restless waiting, we find ourselves growing restless, wondering what to do next. But the passage reminds us that Jesus doesn't leave us to that. That the presence The reality of him with us is not contingent on us somehow working ourselves back up into it. Some secret prayer, some secret position we put ourselves in, some special service that we have to go through. But while we find ourselves restless, if we listen close, suddenly we discover he is there. He shows up, stokes a fire, invites us to breakfast, shares his food, reminds us that he is Lord and calls us back to the work that he has given us to do, reminds us of what it is we are in on. You have work to do. It's easy for you to forget that. Forget that when Christ calls you, he calls you to be a part of something, gives you responsibility, has a task before you to carry out. It's easy to lose perspective on it, 
For some to get so obsessed with it that you end up controlling it. For others to sit around frustrated and restless that it isn't happening on its own. All night, no fish. What you need more than anything to do this work well is the reminder. The reminder that Christ is with you. That Christ commands you. That Christ leads you. That he shows up and speaks to you and pulls you back into participation. You are welcomed by him as a participant into this work. Predicted as far back as Jeremiah that the world is being reached and pulled together. That where he is lifted up, all men are drawn to him. You are energized by the realization that it is true. That he is Lord. That he is resurrected. That he still speaks. That there is more going on than this world so often recognizes. More going on than sometimes we ourselves recognize. That he is capable of the miraculous. Capable of showing off and making his presence known. Awakening us to greater faith and revival. Nets too heavy for us to pull in. Nets so full of fish that the boat itself begins to sink. If not for his touch, his miracle. That we are a part of it. Not because we figured it out, not because we have some special insight on it, but because he appears to us, that he makes himself known to us and gives us a simple command. That thing you've been doing that hasn't been working, do it one more time. Throw that net over here and see what I do with it. Sit down, eat some breakfast, remind yourself of who I am. And let's get back to work. You never know which cast it is, which net it is that you throw out that is the one that the miraculous, the miraculous abundance of Christ demonstrates itself in. But his disciples have never been forced to figure it out for themselves. Only to obey, only to trust, only to remember, to spend time in his presence, to remind themselves that he is Lord And to go back to their work, believing and trusting that he will fulfill every promise that he makes. I hope you see why John puts this story at the very end, even after his conclusion. He pulls us into this participation and says that just as it was for those restless disciples on the bank trying to figure out what to do next, it is the same for us. Those who have believed, who have received this resurrection news of Jesus, what is it that we do next? How kind and gracious it is that what he asks us to do is to sit down and have breakfast with him, to remember that he is Lord, and the simple command, go out and cast that net, and that as we do, we find ourselves in on all of the miraculous life and catch that he has promised. I'm going to close in prayer and we'll worship this morning, and my heart is just that you would do that. Remind yourself, he is Lord. Spend some time. As he builds that fire and invites you to that place, come around side and learn to hear his voice and recognize it again. And as you do, you will find yourself moved to participate in what he is doing, not out of fear or obligation or guilt. But through that recognition that John and his disciples had, he is Lord. It is true. He is resurrected and still present in our midst. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that you do just as you did for those disciples, that by your spirit, you speak to us, you move us, you soften our hearts. At times you convict us of sin, 
to draw us closer to you. At other times, you speak words of encouragement when we most need them. That you break bread, that you share meals, that you give us simple commands that change the long night without catching, that you allow us to be participants in this work that you're doing. So I pray this morning that as we worship you, you would do it again in our hearts and in our lives. Remind us of your resurrection. Remind us of the way in which you gave your life for us. Remind us that you are Lord, that that great prophecy of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that men and women around the world would be drawn to you and would know that you are Lord, that you are our Savior, that you are King of kings, that you are ruling and your kingdom is here now and coming. And that, God, as we're so prone to forget it, that you would move again and again, reminding us, drawing us, God, make our faith more persistent within us. Let that sense of who you are, your presence with us, more solid beneath us. That we might cast our nets and do our work out of the joy of the relationship we have with you, trusting that in your time and in your sovereignty and in your way, those nets will be full, that life will be ours, that the joy of participation in this thing that you're doing for all eternity, that we would be in on it, and that we would know that we are your followers, that you would be in us, that we would have life in you. Remind us again this morning. Let us hear your voice. Know how it is you're calling us to be a part of it again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.